How do you respond when trouble meets you? It was said many years ago. I'm not even sure who said it. There's a couple different people. I heard it from Charles Spurgeon. I heard it from John Owen, even John Bunyan. But the phrase, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The sun's properties do not change, but the properties of, of, of the different materials that the sun shines on are revealed by its heat. In the same way, Jesus showed that the same seeds scattered on different places will produce entirely different results. But that isn't because the seed alters, but because the seed reveals what kind of soil it has landed on. James says for us this morning in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be, kind, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And if you remember, I've talked about this as we walk through the book of James. This section is talking about suffering. So when suffering comes into your life, whether it's big stuff or little stuff, there's a crossroads there, and it will either make you a harder and, and, and nastier person or more bitter and, and sad person, or it will make you godlier or, and, and greater, more loving and more tenderhearted person. But you need to realize, friends, you won't stay the same. When suffering comes, you won't stay the same. Let me put it a different way. When suffering comes into our lives, it will either cause you to make God look big in your eyes and you become small so that you depend on God more and love him more and serve him more or you make God small and you make him weak and you make him evil and you want answers and you want them now and you become the judge and God becomes the defendant. In other words, suffering will either lead you to stand before God humbly, loving him for all the ways that he shows goodness in your life or you'll become someone proud and hardened towards God. You won't stay the same when suffering comes into your life. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It all depends on what kind of heart you have. Is it clay or is it wax? Suffering pushes you of one of two directions. It pushes you either towards God or away from him. And the tendency to question the goodness of God is within the heart of every single person seated here this morning and myself. The tendency to question his goodness. And we need to hold fast to the words of God. The, the scattered Jewish believers needed God's word when they faced various trials that tested the genuineness of their faith because God was there to nurture their faith to completeness. And these first 18 verses of James 1 is, is one of continuous teaching for the believer to follow God when suffering and when trouble comes into your, into your life. And so when we come to verse 16, it's a, it's a bridge between what has been covered in verses 13 through 15 concerning temptation. The people he is writing to are suffering. They have experienced trouble in their lives. And as we looked at last time we were in the book of James, we looked at the temptation to question God, to question his goodness. To question, is God really for us? To question, is God really good? No matter what happens in our life. And he says to us in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And James makes a clear and powerful statement, one that you need to remind yourself and repeat every single day, 
God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. In fact, yeah, that was good. <laughs> Amen. In fact, the English title, God, is derived from the German word for good. God's nature and character is good all the way to the core. William Tyndale said, said it well. He said, God's goodness is the root of all goodness. And our goodness, if we have any, springs out of God's goodness. And you thank the Lord for William Tyndale. I, I failed to mention this last week, but last week was the anniversary of Tyndale's death. So we sit here today as a Bible church because of William Tyndale. You sit here today because of William Tyndale because you have a Bible in your lap. It was his work and perseverance to translate the Bible. He understood God's goodness. And friends, we need to be reminded every day, and this morning especially, God is good all the time. And this morning we're going to look at three areas of his goodness. You have the notes. If you didn't get that, we have it in the foyer. But there's three points this morning. His goodness is unchanging. His goodness is undeserved. And his goodness is unending. So I want to begin this morning by praying. And so I will pray for you. And I'd ask that you pray for me. And we'll get started. Father, we thank you. We recognize again, you are a good God. And you've brought us here, gathered together as the body of Christ to study your word. And I ask, God, that you would help your people to listen, to be receptive to your word, that they would hear from you this morning, that you would be their guide and teacher to understand your truth. And I ask that you would be honored and glorified by all that happens here. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. First, his goodness is unchanging. Before we get to the unchangeableness of God's goodness, James, though, challenges the believers in verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And as I said, this connects back to the prior section where James has been laying this out for us. And he's admonishing us. He's saying, do not be deceived. Do not err. Do not be misled. But the Greek verb paints a clearer picture for us. It means to stray or to wander away from the truth. He's saying, do not wander away from the safety of God. And the Christian life is frequently compared to a walk or a journey. And we all have this tendency with, when trouble comes to, to, to wander away from believing that God is still good. It's a picture of sheep that wanders away from the shepherd and the flock and becomes lost. It's a picture of a, of a ship who drifts off course and becomes lost at sea. And James is warning his readers that we need to continue to hold to a biblical view of who God is. It's more than a simple failure of judgment in this world. It's a, a deviation from the truth of God's word. It's, it's strong. It's emphatic. Do not be deceived. And, and grammatically, the emphasis is forbidding something that's already in progress. Literally, James is saying, stop being deceived. Stop wandering away from God. And stop wandering away from the goodness of God. And James brings this needed admonition to all of us, and he brings it with love. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. These were Christians that James is writing to. They were saved, born again, redeemed believers. They knew God. They believed in salvation through Jesus Christ, and yet they were prone to be led away to, to trust in themselves when trouble came. And if they are prone to this, 
so are we. The peril of the unredeemed sinner is unbelief, but the peril of redeemed sinners is misbelief. C.S. Lewis wrote, the thing I feared is not that I'll stop believing in God, but that I might begin believing dreadful things about him. Man, this is what I hear when I talk to to people and, and I hear their story of how they once were part of the churches. God didn't change. What they believed about God began to change. And this threat is, is very real to you and me. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And the danger for Christians today isn't from the outside. It's not from your neighbors. It's from the inside. Your greatest threat isn't this world. It's your own tendency to wander away from the truth of God. Your biggest problem today is that you will grow cold to the gospel. Or worse yet, you'll get bored with the gospel. You wander away from God when hard times come. And this theme and this concern that James has runs through the entire letter, even to the very last two verses in James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth and someone brings them back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This tendency is in all of us. And God is good, friends, even in the hard times. You need to remember this today. And to the one that's here today who's been wandering away from the safety of God, I, I called you to come back. Don't continue to be led astray from God. He is your rock. He is your help. James isn't done, though. Look at verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Where do good gifts come from? They don't come from below or around or within. They come from above. They come from God. God is the source of all that is good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The word every here is emphatic. It's, it's forceful. Nothing that is not good and perfect is from God. And there are actually two Greek words for the word translated gift here. They're both used synonymously, but there's some nuance to them. There are two ways to see his gifts. In the, in the way of his actual giving of the gifts and the nature of the gifts that he gives. So when verse 17 says every good gift, it, it focuses our attention to the act of giving. Now the gifts that he gives, he says, are good. But the very act of giving by God is also good. This may seem like an obvious point, but nonetheless, it needs to be mentioned. Because we live in a world where this isn't always the case. Paul makes this point in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. People may give to the church every week, but they, they don't do it with joy necessarily. They don't, they don't do it out of love, but they do it out of just fear or obligation. 
It says God loves a cheerful giver. And perhaps maybe in your life, you've, you might have given a gift to someone, not out of love, but you give it out of obligation. It's, they gave me something, so I got to have to give them back something. Friends, that's not how God is. God never gives out of obligation. It's not out of guilt. God gives out of his love for us. And God's gifts are so much better than ours. Matthew 7, 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's gifts are so much better than ours. His, his motivation for giving is good and his gifts are good. He says that they're perfect, meaning that they're exactly what we need. His gifts are always there to build us up, not knock us down. And it doesn't always mean that the gifts that we see are pleasant, but God has a good purpose behind all the gifts that he gives. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, his goodness comes down from above. The verb translated coming down as a present participle that, that describes a continual, it's, it's never-ending flow of God's generosity to his children. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, you are here this morning because God woke you up. Satan wanted you to stay in bed. But God is a giver of good gifts, and he gave you air in your lungs to come and to worship this morning. And my best counsel to give to you in times of trouble and in suffering is that we need to look up. Don't judge God by what you see around you. Don't look horizontally. Look vertically. Look to him. Your outlook on life and trouble that comes depends upon where you look. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. Friends, we need to look to God. He is our Father. He is the giver of good gifts. And do you see how James describes God? He says the Father of lights. This is a typical Jewish uh, description that speaks of God without directly mentioning his name. Yet this term has so much meaning for us. The lights here refer to heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the heavenly bodies. And, and to say that God is the Father means to say that he created them. They're his. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's his. God did this. He is the creator of all that you see. And again, in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation is God's display of his goodness. The heavens declare the loving generosity of our good God. That's why he created it. So the next time that you're outside and you look up at the sky, you need to remember that God created that. And they're there because God loves us. And he is our father. And those stars, the sun, the moon, all still exist because God loves us. And he's an attentive father. Not, not only did he create 76 trillion stars, that's 70 with 22 zeros behind it, but he knows every one. And that's just stars. But he knows every 
person. He knows everything about us. He knows all the hairs in your head and all the ones that fell out this week. (laughs) He knows you. And he loves you. And he cares for you. I mean, he cares for our creation. He keeps it going and moving. But he cares for us more. And perhaps this morning you're you're here and you're struggling to believe that God is good. So perhaps you're not looking at God. Your eyes are fixated on everything but God. And your view is horizontal. Worse yet, it's focused downward. And friends, James is pointing our eyes up in times of suffering. Don't look down. Don't look around. He says, look up. See the father of lights. Our good God knows us, and our good God doesn't change also. James says there's no variation or shadow due to change. The word variation is used only here in the New Testament, and it talks about the constant change in the heavens. And it may not seem that way to the naked eye, but there's always change. You can sit outside on a sunny day, and the shadows will change. The earth continues to to move. Everything changes on earth and in the universe. Everything changes except God. He never changes. The theological term is God is immutable, unchanging. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Friends, God doesn't change when we do. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can count on God in that passage in Hebrews because he will never, 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 ever, ever leave you or forsake you. He is unchanging. And maybe this is new for you this morning, but God never changes. God is from all eternity, the eternal king, immortal God. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God's character doesn't change. God's truth doesn't change. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's ways do not change. God's purposes do not change. What God does in time, he planned from eternity. And all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. And what God says, God will do. There's no variation of change with our God. And this should bring us great comfort this morning. God is perpetually, constantly, and consistently good. God never gets in a bad mood. Even though we do, very frequently. He never changes for the worst. And God never changes for the better. Do you know why? Because he's already perfect. You can't get any better than God. So friends, if God feels distant to you this morning, you need to realize that he isn't the one that moved. He didn't change. If God seems far away, friends, who moved? It wasn't God, it was us. 
And if we realize it and recognize that, we need to run back to God, friends. He's always there, and his goodness will never change. Secondly, his goodness is undeserved. In the midst of this discussion, James didn't want his readers to be confused in what the greatest gift was. I read a story this week of a couple who brought their, bought their son a new bike for his birthday. And it was exactly what a, what a boy would want with a bike. And, he, and they really, as parents, couldn't wait to see the, the response of their son when they would give it to him. And, and on his birthday, they presented a large box wrapped covering the bike, and, and they took the box off to show the bike. And to the dismay, the boy looked at it with a huge smile and began to play with the box. Right, this happens. And it took him a while as parents to convince him that the real present wasn't the box, but the bike. And we laugh. But this happens to us every single day. We can so easily, and just in fluid, hold on to the outer wrappings and miss the, the real gift. And we begin to love all the good gifts that God gives us here. And begin to love those more than we love God himself. You know, this is the hazard. Every time these starry-eyed couples come into my office for premarital counseling and I see the love that they have, and my greatest fear is that they begin to love each other more than they love God. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Marriage was designed and put forth by God. It was his plan. So no matter how much we love our spouses, we should love God more. And when parents have the joy of having kids, and their joy, they are just the outer wrappings. God is the present. We love our kids, but we love God more. And we can fall into this trap to begin to love God's goodness and his gifts to us more than God himself. And it shouldn't be this way. We can get so caught up with the outer wrappings of God's goodness that we, we miss the true gift of him. He says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And James affirms this important doctrine for us in this verse, the doctrine of regeneration. And this is why I love expository preaching. When else would I come to an important doctrine if I didn't preach through a book verse by verse? James says that God brought us forth. Friends, this is regeneration. Regeneration is the sovereign and gracious act by which God gives new life to those who are dead in, in sins and trespasses. Jesus explained this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I want you to turn there. I want you to see it in your Bibles. John chapter 3. John 
Verse 3. Jesus answered him, verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus struggled to understand this. He isn't the only one, I'm sure. Twice in this passage, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, words that, that show us the importance of what he's saying. This underscores the importance of a new birth. As Jesus says in verse 7, you must be born again until God regenerates us, that is, brings us to spiritual life. We're not even interested in God or Jesus or salvation. We are spiritually dead. If we hear the gospel, it makes no impact on us. And, and to the extent that we understand it and we dislike it, instead, we are naturally attracted to worldly things, to sinful things. Until you're born of the Spirit, until you're born again, you do not want to read the Bible. You don't want to accept what it says. You just continue to reject it. The good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, explained, the, the world is not interested in the affairs of the soul at all and tries to avoid considering them. The world is spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, and it regards spiritual things as utterly boring. It wants to enjoy the world. It is out for the glittering prizes that the world has to offer. But the Christian has been made spiritually alive. He is very concerned about the affairs of the soul, they are the things that come first in this life and in all his thinking. How then has this happened? It is the power of Christ that has come upon him. And the Bible tells us again and again that before we are born again, we are spiritually dead. The Spirit must do the work for us to understand the gospel. And what is the work of the Spirit of God? It is to accomplish what cannot be accomplished in any possible way by any other person. If you read Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, yet you were made alive together with Christ. And Alistair Begg asked the right question, how can dead people come to life? It takes a miracle. And you see this in the gospel. The gospel is not a word of encouragement, he says, to those who are sort of a, a well-meaning people who like to add a little religion to their life. It's not a word of encouragement to those who would like to add a little Jesus to their life. No, the word of the gospel is a word that comes to the rebel heart. And it says, I am a rebel against God. I may be indifferent to him. I may be antagonistic to him, but I'm actually rebelling against him. And he comes to the Bible and it says, I'm commanding you to do an about turn to repent of your sins and to believe in me. And the individual says, there is no way that that's going to happen. It's going to take a miracle. And it takes a miracle. The miracle of regeneration. And friends, don't you see it? God is a God of miracles. And regeneration is the greatest miracle of all. This is where God does what is impossible for man to do. The Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, talks about God taking a heart of stone out and putting a heart of flesh. And in the New Testament, when I read, it talks about being born again or being brought from death to life. It speaks 
of being given eyes to see and ears to hear, of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And this is the work of God. This is what I pray for. And in a group this size, there is perhaps someone here that has not been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. And friend, perhaps God has you here this day because you still live and breathe each day with a heart of stone. Perhaps today is the day of salvation. Perhaps today is the day that that God saves you, that you turn from your sin of unbelief and, and trust in Christ alone. Friends, it is the goodness of God that you're sitting here this morning. And if that's you, friend, I would love to talk with you today. I would love to sit down and walk through more of what the scriptures speak of this. In fact, all of our pastors and elders will be by the doors as we leave this morning because this is what we're about. We're a Bible church, but we preach the gospel. And we just talked about this in Sunday school. It's all in my class. You're going to get a repeat here, but we need to be fluent in the gospel. So fluent in the gospel that it just comes out. You guys know what fluency, right? When you learn a new language, you know, when we were in Sweden, I wanted to learn Swedish, but you know what kept happening? I would take the Swedish word into my mind. I'm trying to translate it. It would take five seconds, and I'd have a, a word, and figuring that out was just horrible. I wasn't fluent. But we need to be fluent about the gospel. We need to be, be able to share the gospel without any hindrance, any, any fear. You know, the one book that I shared and what we talked about in Sunday school was the four points there. God, man, Christ response. This should be able to come out of your lips so easily, friends. God, who's God? Let's be interactive now, all right? We're changing it up. Who's God? God is a creator. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. He cannot be with sin. And then there's man. And what is man? Trust me, this is the best part of the sermon. Who is man? Man is sinful. We cannot save ourselves. We can't do anything to change our situation. And if God is holy and God is just, and God can't be with sin, and we are sinful, then what are we going to do? The third point, Christ. Christ comes, right? And he lives a perfect life. He died in our place. He's God, and he's man, so that he can take my sin upon himself on the cross. And the fourth point, friend, is we need to respond. You see, Satan and the demons all believe those three points. They believe that God is holy and just. They believe that man is sinful. And they believe and know that Christ came, but they don't respond. And that's the question for you this morning. This is the gospel, friends. I mean, obviously you can expand on it a whole lot more, and Scripture does this. But we should know these four points. We should be so fluent in the gospel at every point in every way. And now I went off my notes and I got to find my spot. <laughs> you know, we, we'll get into this in the book of James. This is not in my notes either, but it's my mind. You know, we talk about it here and then later in this chapter, we'll be doers of the word. Friends, that's what we are. As, as gospel proclaimers, we, we, we do what the word says. And if you're here this morning if, and this gospel is, is brand new to you, we want to walk through the gospel with you. That's what we're about. Well, he continues in James 1.18, we see that his goodness is 
to us is undeserved. His, his goodness in saving us is not out of obligation. It's of his own will that he brings us forth. The same verb is seen in verse 15 where James says that and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. But he says here in verse 18, God brings us forth a new life. And the grammatical emphasis in this verse speaks of something that has happened once and for all. You're not born again and again and again. Salvation is of God's own will, not of our own, and it's once and for all. That's the source behind it. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Since we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, we won't have the will, the ability to choose God. A, a sinner cannot choose God any more than a dead man can choose to walk. God chooses us. And God didn't choose us merely because he knew beforehand that we would choose him. No, God chose us and brought us forth by his own will. And how does this life come? James says it comes by the word of truth. God saves sinners who hear and believe the word of truth. Ephesians 1.13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We need to be about this work. God has chosen to bring forth new life by the word of truth. And this affirms to us this morning the, the primary nature of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and the life in the work of the church. This is what we're about. And this should define who and what we do, who we are and what we do. A church is a true church only to the degree that it's exposed to and permits its life together to be shaped by the word of God. So every part of who we are as Edgewood Bible Church should be shaped by the word whether that's a women's ministry or men's ministry or WANA or youth group, we're not a social club. We are a church brought to life through the word of God. So if the word isn't at the center, friends, it's not worth doing. The word has to be at the center. So we've seen, and I got to finish here. I'm running out of time. God's goodness is unchanging. God's goodness is undeserved. And last his goodness is unending. And I believe there are some of you here this morning that have doubted the goodness of God in your life. And why do I think that? Because God's word has story after story of the same people that have doubted that too. The pattern of humanity. And this is why God reminds us to take time again to believe and to trust in, in his plan. Take Isaiah 59.1, for example. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. And the context of this verse is that Israel is suffering in major ways. And so whether they say it with their mouths or grumble silently in their hearts, they have accused God of two things. First, of God being powerless in their time of need. And, and second, being unmoved by their cries for help. And you and I are a lot like the Israelites. When life is hard, when suffering and pain come, we are tempted to bring God into the court of our judgment and question his goodness for us. And this is what Israel was doing. They were questioning the very character of God. 
And like I said at the beginning, the sun, the same sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay. And this is true for every single one of us. When trials come into our lives, we have two decisions. Trust God more and, and wait on him or question him and become impatient. There's a serious danger with this type of doubt because you can no longer pursue someone when you no longer trust them. Think of this. Would you continue to invest in a company if you knew that the CEO was corrupt and stealing from the investors? Or would you continue to visit a fraudulent doctor who received, to receive care if you knew that he lied about how he got his license? Or would you hire a babysitter that had been convicted of consistent, repeated crimes? And all of you said, no, I wouldn't do that. But when you respond with doubt of God's goodness, even in subtle ways, you will quit pursuing him. And this is exactly what was happening with the people that James is writing to. This is exactly why you come every week, Lord willing, to worship together, to be reminded of who God is. They're suffering. They're in serious pain. And they began to believe that God wasn't strong enough to intervene, that his hand was too short. And that he didn't love his children enough, that his ear was dull to their cries. They needed to be reminded by James, the pastor, that God's goodness doesn't end. He says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And when he says that they are first fruits, it was the first and best of the crops that were harvested and were usually an indicator of what the rest of the crop would be. So when he writes of the first fruits, he carries the idea of a foretaste of that which is to come. And when James writes we here, it is applied to the believers of that time, those Jewish believers who were the first of the harvest of the gospel of Christ. They were the first of many to come in the spiritual harvest that God was starting. And listen, friends, what God has done in our lives to change our hearts by his goodness is only a preview of the day to come when God will make all things new. And the work he has done in our new birth will one day lead to a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more trials, there'll be no more temptations to doubt God. And what we need to understand is the grace of God will visit us in uncomfortable forms. The difficulty in your life is not a sign that God's hand is too short, nor is it a sign that his ears are too dull. No, it's a sign of his loving kindness and goodness in your life. And God wraps his arms around you and brings you through difficult times to increase your faith and to increase your love in him. Friends, we are in good hands with our God. All of your gifts that you have been given from God are good and perfect. And I pray that God will deliver you from any pride that you may have in your giftedness. The gifts that God gives us, he gives to serve others and to glorify God. And we remember this morning our church and God's gracious goodness to us. We have most definitely experienced the goodness of God here. And this church is, is doing well because this congregation is so great, right? No. No. It's because our God is great. This congregation is filled with sinners. 
Has, has the church here experienced God's goodness because I'm so great? Absolutely not. I'm just one more sinner. Our church is doing well because God is great. And his goodness is never ending. It is because God desires to glorify himself in a group of people like you and me. And he knows that if he picks people like you and me, he will get more glory than if he picked others. And all glory goes to Christ. All glory. And when suffering comes, we have an opportunity to either glorify God or dismiss him. And one book that helps us in the midst of suffering is the book of Lamentations. It was written not simply to express grief over loss, as you might think from its title, but it's there to help God's people, including the author himself, to cope with loss and the temptation of despair by reminding them of God's presence and God's goodness. It is there to help God's people to see God's goodness and power in the midst of suffering. And so if you're here this morning and you're in the midst of suffering, it'd be good for you to spend the week reading Lamentations. Because the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And it all depends on what kind of heart you had. Do you have a heart of clay or a heart of wax? Suffering pushes you in one of two directions, as I said. It either pushes you towards God or away from God. And I pray that the suffering that you're experiencing right now, friends, will push you towards an all-satisfying, all-loving God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love us. And God, I know in, in this congregation now, there are those that are suffering in the midst of suffering and trials. And the tendency maybe is to begin to, to question your goodness in this. I pray and I ask God that you would direct their minds and their hearts to your word, to your truth. That they would find their hope not in the circumstances of this life, but in you alone. They would be reminded yet again that you are a good God. That they would love you more in the midst of this. God, I pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you. And maybe they have spoken to others throughout their life about being a Christian, but there's no evidence in their life. I pray that you would save them, that you would regenerate them, that you would bring new life. God, this is our desire to, to share and to preach the gospel here at Edgewood Bible Church. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in and through this. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.